ever felt like this? Your prayers seem ineffective. Your doubts feel paralyzing. Your love for other Christians has waned. And your passion for evangelism has faded. And if you're honest, you have almost a complete lack of assurance and joy in Jesus. These are just some of the classic symptoms which add up to a diagnosis that some have uh, described as the dark night of the soul. This is something that even Christians may experience. It is a period in our lives, long or short, where the sun, S-O-N, seems hidden, where the windows of heaven seem closed, where the electricity, God's power in our lives, seems cut, where spiritual blackness and bleakness envelops our hearts and minds. Such a description, though hardly a happy way to begin a sermon, may in fact kindle for you the memory of a past experience. Or it may be today that this day, this morning, that this in fact describes your experience. That you are in the midst and in the thick of a deep spiritual gloom. And frankly, you don't even expect that God would have anything to say to you this morning in your situation. Now, the Apostle Paul, who was one of God's most upbeat and infused saints, once found himself down, down, down in the dumps. He was utterly discouraged, he was totally deflated, and he was literally in the dark. But to Paul, and into Paul's night, the Lord comes. And beside Paul, the Lord stands. And to Paul's discouraged heart, the Lord speaks his words of comfort. And who knows but the same Lord Jesus Christ may come this morning to meet with you in the trouble that you face. Now, he will only do so, of course, as we meet him in his word. And so we turn this morning to Acts chapter 22, please. This is a portion of God's word that providentially on this Remembrance Sunday, a Sunday where we think about losses in our nation and in our lives, what God has brought to us this morning. I've entitled it Paul's Dark Night of the Soul as we continue our series of Spreading Flame. And by the way, if you've never experienced a period of uh, a dark season, then don't switch off because God's Word works as a preventative and in a preparatory way. It's not just a prescription for our ills. So Acts 22, verse 30, here's how things begin to fade to black uh, for Paul. The next day, 
since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into the barracks. Now, here's the key verse of the whole passage. Verse 11. The following Night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we ask this morning that it would be your word that would come to us through the scriptures today. And that the voice of Jesus that Paul heard would be heard by our hearts this morning. And that his presence would be felt as this sermon is preached. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This week has been one of the best weeks in the life of a certain Barack Obama. And it's also been one of the worst weeks in the life of John McCain. The Apostle Paul had just had a John McCain week. Disappointment really wouldn't be the word for it. I think despair might be the title to write over it. Seven days before, Paul had made a landmark journey to the city of Jerusalem. He had come to this city with high hopes. Not with high hopes of being elected, but hopes of two things. First of all, encouraging the church in Jerusalem. And then secondly, evangelizing the Jews of Jerusalem. But perplexingly for Paul, 
things had not gone to plan, or not at least to Paul's plan. The reception of the Jerusalem church to Paul, we've seen this, was rather lukewarm. And instead of the open arms of welcome, they had met him with the finger of suspicion. And they say, Paul, uh, the Jewish Christians, they're suspicious of you. You're going to have to make concessions to them and some compromises. And then it was not just the church who were lukewarm to Paul, it was also the Jews in the city, falsely accusing him, beating him, and even attempting to murder the Apostle Paul. Paul was only saved by, of all people, the savage Romans, who themselves uh, then tried to beat the life out of Paul if it were not for the law that protected him. In other words, even before our opening verse, the 30th verse of chapter 22, in other words, even before this point, the Apostle Paul is having one of the worst weeks of his life. And the compass of Paul's hopes has turned decisively south. And things are about to go from bad to worse as Paul arrives in the court. Now, the Roman authorities, as I said, they had Paul in their custody. At one level, they were protecting him. But they also were trying to keep the peace in Jerusalem. And so they wanted to get to the bottom of why this man, why this Jew, apparently named Paul, had caused such a ruckus in the holy city. Why was it that everyone was so mad at Paul? Frankly, the Romans didn't have much of a clue. And unable, due to the protections of Paul's Roman citizenship, to beat the answers out of him by torture, uh, the commander of the Roman guard comes up with a plan. He thinks, well, I'll try a different tack. And since he is a Jew, uh, why don't I hand him over to the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin? And then what I'll do is I'll wait in the wings, I'll listen to Paul as he is questioned, and maybe I'll get some answers that way. And so he orders, because they were under his jurisdiction, he orders that the Sanhedrin meet together. The Jewish high court uh, is really what the Sanhedrin was. It was composed of 70 members. Uh, the majority of them were Sadducees. The minority were Pharisees. And they, their job was to apply the sacred Jewish law to the Jewish people. And this was the court that Jesus himself had stood before years before this occasion. This was the court that had condemned Jesus to crucifixion. And now Paul stands before the same deliberative, deliberative body. And the question is, is he guilty? Is the Apostle Paul guilty of a crime? Because remember, they had claimed that he had committed a crime. They had said of Paul that he had brought uh, some Gentiles into the inner area of the temple, was the charge. And so we, uh, we look at this uh, situation and we wonder, how will Paul plead? Verse 1, if you look at it, is the answer. Paul submits a plea of not guilty. He says, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience. He appeals to the conscience. Something maybe a little bit strange to us, but in Jewish tradition, the conscience was viewed as very important. 
Now, the conscience being that, that inner witness that we have, though sometimes it can be skewed and tainted by sin, but generally, at its best, it gives us a sense of direction as to whether our actions are right or wrong. And so what Paul is saying here is not that he is utterly sinless. Paul knew himself, and he said in 1 Timothy, that he was the chief of sinners. Now what Paul is saying was that in this last week or so, uh, his conscience, this lesser, more fallible guide, hasn't been bothering him. And so he says, go figure this out. If I've committed a crime, my conscience doesn't plea against me. And And yet at this point, this gives rise to a massive conflict in the court. Because the high priest, an unsavory character named Ananias, uh, orders at this point that Paul be struck. He says, how dare you claim to be innocent? Paul, with a thick lip and maybe a bruise forming on his eye, is quick to retaliate in verse 3. And I don't uh, imagine you'll want to put this verse as a plaque in your kitchen or share it on a pastoral visit. Uh, because it says in verse 3, uh, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. He was basically saying, I'm not explaining all the reasons why, but he was saying, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite because on the one hand you claim to be judging me today based on the law, but look, here you, you are, and you've struck a man who is innocent till proven guilty. Now at one level, what Paul said in this retort was accurate. Indeed, some commentators have backed Paul to the hill. And they've said, well done, stand up for yourself, old boy, sort of thing. Personally, I'm not too convinced by that. I think Paul himself came to realize that his response, while true in much of its content, was unhelpful in terms of its style and its, certainly its attitude. Certainly, Paul didn't follow his master, Jesus, who, when they hurled insults at him, did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. But Paul wasn't Jesus. He wasn't perfect, and neither are we. And probably many of us in the same situation, if we'd been struck in the face, would have retorted with a verbal volley. But when Paul is rebuked, notice this, verse 4, for speaking in such a way to the high priest. Notice that in verse 5, he shows immediate remorse. He first of all says, and it's a little strange, he says that he didn't realize that it was the high priest who had given the order. There are various uh, explanations people come up with. Was it Paul's bad eyesight? Uh, Was it that the high priest wasn't wearing his robes on his day off? Maybe it was that since Paul hardly ever came to Jerusalem and in the days without mass media where you would see, you know, Gordon Brown all over the screen, maybe he just didn't know him by sight, Ananias. Well, whatever the case, uh, he, he says this was no excuse. According to Scripture, and he quotes from Exodus 22:28, a Jew shouldn't speak evil about the ruler of God's people. And therefore, with a respect to God's law, and with a respect to God's ordained office of high priest, though maybe not with a personal respect to Ananias, Paul shows deference and repentance. Now, I don't have time to explore it this morning, but surely there are implications for us here in terms of our 
attitudes to those who are over us in the Lord. Whether that is politically, which is very relevant for some parts of the world at the moment, or whether that is in spiritual terms. Not to say that we can never disagree with a leader or dispute the policy of a leadership. But it is to say that there is a, there is a way of saying things and that there is an attitude that so often and so unfortunately can bleed through of disrespect to the office. I think we all need, know deep down the difference between the two. Well, Paul quickly and rightly corrects this and in verse 6, he's keen to get his defense back on track. It just hasn't started well for a moment at all in this case. And yet, things really go, yet again, from worse to worse. Because following the conflict in verses 3 to 5, Paul doesn't succeed any better in verses 6 to 10. And his defense ends in total chaos in the court. Now, now what happens is that Paul tries another line here. He thinks, well, if the personal defense won't work, the conscience, I'll try a theological defense, the resurrection. Now, this idea of resurrection isn't specifically the resurrection of Jesus that Paul is talking about. Jesus' resurrection may be the proof of this, but what Paul is speaking about is the resurrection in a general sense. He's raising the issue, or the belief, that human beings at the end of history will all rise from the dead, some to judgment and some to salvation. And this was not an accidental theological point that Paul happened you know, to rustle up. Paul understood, he knew, verse 6, that some in the Sanhedrin, the majority, were Sadducees, while others, the sizable minority, were Pharisees. He therefore also knew, verse 8, of a theological difference between these two parties. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. They were first century materialists. When you die, you die. That's it. They didn't believe either in angels nor demons, the supernatural realm. But notice this. And look, the author of Acts is explaining this to his Gentile readers who wouldn't know the Pharisees acknowledged them all. They believe, like Paul, in the resurrection of the dead at the end of all time, and they believe in, in angels and demons. And so Paul knew that to bring up the issue of the resurrection was to light a firework. It would be a little bit like in the middle of the Reformation to come into the, the, the middle of the debate between the Pope on the one side and Martin Luther on the other and say, gentlemen, uh, today the discussion... Our topic today is justification by faith alone. Any thoughts? Uh, and you would just know that the whole thing would erupt. And, and so what Paul is trying to do here, he's not trying to cause chaos. What he's trying to do here is to, to gain an ally. He's trying to draw these uh, Pharisees in. He's trying to say, we're on the same team. And he's trying to pit the Sanhedrin against itself. He even says in verse 6 uh, that he is a Pharisee. You know, I'm one of you. I grew up as a, as a Pharisee in terms of my training. And sure enough, the Pharisees jump right in and uh, defend Paul. They even argue that he may have been given his revelation, his teaching uh, from an angel. 
you know, which the Sadducees didn't even believe in. But I don't think what Paul expected was for things to get out of hand as he did. Instead of merely getting a foothold in the discussion, the sympathies of a large swathe of the Sanhedrin, rather than then being able to make his full defense, and then, as I think he would have wished, to proclaim the full gospel about Jesus. What an opportunity this was to the bigwigs of Judaism. Instead of this, uh, the, the conflict becomes an all-out bar brawl. And uh, verse 9 tells us there was a great uproar and that Paul was nearly torn limb from limb. The only other place that this phrase uh, uh, tearing in this violent way is used is of the demoniac, you know, who tore his chains that people put in him. This was a pretty violent brawl that Paul found himself in the middle of. And once again, it is the Romans who intervene and save Paul's life. He may have died. And they drag him Just imagine this from Paul's perspective. They drag him back into the barracks and they throw him back into his cell and it is the end of yet another discouraging day in the life of the Apostle Paul. We're not the only ones that have discouraging days sometimes. Paul had a hugely discouraging day. And yet, the days are not the worst, are they? When you're discouraged. The worst part is the night time. And so from in the court, we move secondly, notice verse 11, to in the night. In the night. Verse 11 tells us so much. It is literally pregnant with meaning this verse. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And as we meditate on this verse, the first thing we notice about it is what it implies. Do you notice what it implies? If the Lord had to come and encourage Paul, then the obvious implication is that Paul was discouraged. He was downbeat. Paul was wondering just what on earth was going on in his life. He was probably wondering, in fact, whether he would ever get out of Jerusalem. Agabus had prophesied that when he came, when he went into Jerusalem, he would be set upon. Maybe finally Paul would be executed. Uh, Maybe, finally, Paul wouldn't get to Rome as was his great personal ambition to preach the gospel. Those hopes are fading now. And it's interesting, isn't it, that these doubts, these fears, these worries were at their height during the night. I mean, you can just use your imagination here. Maybe Paul couldn't sleep. It's great those times in your life when you can sleep like a baby, but it's not always like that, is it? And maybe as Paul stared up into the the blackness of the, the ceiling, he reflected on the eminent blackness of his life situation and thought the two are just the same. You know what's wonderful? It was in the night that the Lord came to Paul. 
Christ literally emerges from the shadows to stand beside Paul. Notice verse 11. The appearance of the Lord. Read the opening of the verse again. It's wonderful, I think. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. Just think about this. The Lord could have sent an emissary to Paul. He could have sent his word via some spokesman. He could have sent in a pastoral visitor to convey a message, but from a distance. You know, the Lord is up in heaven. He's ruling over all things, but he has, you know, he's got a little message. He's just sent me to, to share it with you. But the Lord does much, much more than that. Jesus Christ, in a way that we cannot understand or fathom, though himself, in terms of his location, situated in heaven, appeared in a felt and manifest way to Paul through the shadows. And this was something Paul needed because he'd been isolated from his Christian friends. You know, he'd been surrounded by the angry mob and and the Romans and the Jewish leadership. Paul feels alone, but now he knows that he is not alone. Jesus comes to him and stands beside him. And brothers and sisters, is that not, is that not what we need in our times of trouble? We actually need something more, and I say this advisedly and carefully, but we need something more than merely the proclamation of God's Word. As significant as that is, there are times where we also need the felt presence of the Lord. You know, people say, I I need the pastor to visit me. Jesus Christ is the pastor of the church. The rest of us are under shepherds. And the great pastoral visitation which we really need is Christ's visitation. That's what we need to know, isn't it? That the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That he leads me beside quiet waters. It's wonderful in that psalm, isn't it? How Jesus is with the flock. And he's just leading them. The wonderful reality is that Jesus is with you today. He's promised to us, I am with you always. Not sometimes. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And yet, wonderfully, sometimes, and what a blessing it is, he makes that presence felt. So the Lord stood near Paul. That's the appearance of the Lord. But notice that along with this appearance comes the assurance of the Lord. For it wasn't just that the Lord stood silent. The Lord spoke. You know, if a child wakes up frightened in the night, frightened because of a nightmare, what do they do? They run through to the parents' room and they look for two things. The first thing they look for is the cuddling presence of their mum or their dad. And then the second thing that they look for is the comforting words from their mouth. You know, we're just big kids, aren't we? The Apostle Paul needed both the presence of his Lord and Saviour, but he also needed the words of assurance in the night. 
This promise from Jesus. And it's prefaced, notice, by this little statement. Two words. Take courage. Again, Paul lacked courage. The Apostle Paul, who we often think was a superhero and a super Christian, was afraid in his situation. Don't be afraid, says Paul. Do you know there are four other times in the New Testament where Jesus says to somebody, take courage. The first two occasions uh, in the Gospels, he said it to a woman who was suffering from bleeding. And he also said it to a paralyzed man. Take courage. He said to two people who were suffering from debilitating illness. Take courage. The third occasion where he, where he said it was where the disciples were in the midst of a raging storm. And they could hardly probably hear the words of Jesus over the storm. They thought they were going to drown. They thought they were going to die. And they hear the words of Jesus, take courage in the face of our death. Jesus says, take courage. And then the fourth and final occasion was in the upper room, hours, just hours before his own crucifixion. And he says, in the face of my death, Take courage. It's not going to end there in the tomb because I'm going to rise from the dead to give you hope. You see, it's in the most bleak and black situations and it's especially there that Jesus says to us, take courage. Now, he does not do so without reason. I mean, there's nothing worse, is there, when someone just comes alongside you and says, "Ah, don't worry about it. Ah, Take courage. I remember uh, a difficult time in, in our family life. Our parents, our, uh, their family firm, in the last recession, was sort of hit. Small firm was hit with a tidal wave of that. And uh, we had a difficult time with uh, parents without jobs and this kind of thing for a while. And I remember from that experience, a number of people who would come and say, don't worry about it or praying for you. And that was all, and it seemed a little bit glib. But there were others that, that came, and they said all the same things. But the difference was, they, they gave us a reason to have hope. And they offered assistance, and they, and, and they offered ways of helping and supporting. And so it is here, in this situation. Jesus doesn't just say, take courage, but he then gives a ground for it, a reason for it. And he says, Paul, the reason why you don't need to fear in your situation is this. Here's my promise to you. As you have testified in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul, despite appearances, Jerusalem is not the end for you. I have further plans. And while you may have been fairly unfruitful in Jerusalem, you have been faithful in testimony. And now you will go on to Rome and you will testify about me in that place. We cannot underestimate how important that promise became for the Apostle Paul in the years that lay ahead. From this point, it took Paul two long, frightening years to get to Rome. He would spend from this point four years in custody, in captivity. And yet all along the way, as mobs try to kill him, 
as soldiers tried to, to guard him, as fears would come and assail him, as he's in a ship one time and it goes aground on him, through all of this, he has the promise that says, I'm going to make it to Rome. Now, brothers and sisters, we do not have that specific promise that Paul had. Of course, we don't. But we do have promises that are more reliable than the bank. Not promises about where we will be two years from now or six months from now. Oh, if only that were so. But we have more important promises than these things. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do not say, my discouraged soul, you will not make it. When the Lord has said, I will carry you to completion. Or to those of us who have been separated, separated from loved ones, separated from health, separated from a sphere of ministry we used to enjoy, whatever it may be, God says to us, yet neither death nor life, angels or demons, present or future, nor any powers, height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Verses like that are rays of light that shine in upon us even in the darkest experience. And if you are in the dark this morning, realize that like Paul, you both need God's promises and you need the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as long as we live this life, there will be seasons of darkness. Hopefully more seasons of sunshine. But when we move into eternity, and that's coming quicker than we would like to think, when we move into eternity, things will no longer be in these particular shades. They will be black and white. They will be dark and light. There will only be two eternal shades. I tremble to tell you this morning if you are not a Christian today, that for those who reject Christ and reject His cross and reject His provision for our sin, there is a bleak shade. One of Jesus' descriptions of hell depicts it as, depicted it as the outer darkness. Pitch black. All that awaits those who refuse to come penitently and faithfully to the cross of Jesus is that darkness. If you've not done that, dear friend, I plead with you this morning to come over from the darkness and into the light. Because you know, when Jesus hung on the cross, He died there as a substitute for your sin. And He paid the price that was needful for it. And one of the things that we're told, and it is not accidental, is that as he hung there under God's judgment, 
that darkness came over the face of the land. Surely it was a picture of the darkness that enshrouded his soul. And he cried out, my God, my God. He cried that out as your substitute. Why have you forsaken me? Here's why, or one of the reasons. So that by faith in him, you might leave the darkness and come into the light of life. And into the hope of heaven. Do you know how heaven is described? Heaven is described as a city that does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. If you know the Lamb who takes away your sin, you may endure dark seasons. But your future will be gloriously luminous. And if now the lights are low for you, look for the appearing of the Savior in the shadows, listen, and then lean upon His promises, which are assured to lighten your path all the way home. Let us pray together.